Greetings, comrades, and welcome to another episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, I have a great episode planned for you guys, but I do have some, I guess you could say, unfortunate news, but things will all work out going forward. I'm going to say that this is the penultimate episode of Chatter in the Skull. Not like this weekly episode is going anywhere. The main issue is, is that as I have over the past couple days, been trying to find ways to expand the social media presence of the show and create shorter clips and episodes, maybe some YouTube shorts, stuff like that. So in my quest to do this, one of the tools that I've been using is the various auto GBT bots out there. I'll create this bot or whatever. And I'll give it a goal to like examine all the subtitles from Chatter in the Skull and find phrases which have high... High virality type of thing. This is what I, I told it. Examine all these episodes. Give me like a couple clips that are a couple minutes long. And rate them in terms of which ones would you think have the potential to go the most viral. So I set it up. I set the bot to go off and do its task. And it starts coming back with another chatter in the skull. And I'm like, what the hell? Because I'm pretty sure I was the only one. I look up the show title did some digging and made, and before I started this series, made sure that I was, or tried at least to make sure that I was the only one with the name. Turns out I did not try hard enough because this bot was able to find another podcast with the name Chatter in the Skull. So anyway, it starts like giving me quotes for this other podcast. And I was like, okay, this is not good. This is not what I want. So anyway, I tried to see if I had potentially started the show sooner unfortunately they started the show about a year sooner than mine however it seems like it might be that they stopped doing episodes i don't know either way one of the hilarious and great ironies of this whole thing is that it's actually a this other chatter in the skull is a a, a podcast political podcast and b it's a right-wing political podcast very strict just hilarious how that worked out and even though if this podcast has stopped producing episodes, they haven't produced anything in like six months or something like that. Even if they have stopped producing episodes, it's still going to mess up like, again, search engine optimization, all these stupid things, which is unfortunate. Anyway, if I had been the first one to have the show title, I would have definitely gone to bat for it. But considering that I don't, I just don't really have a leg to stand on. So preemptively, I'm actually going to change the title of the series so this won't be the last episode under the chatter in the skull name it's going to be the second to last I believe the 30th episode will be the last under the chatter in the skull and then i'm going to just come out with the new name and everything like that new logo and virtually very little will actually change about the show besides the name itself but that being said, I know that this is not going to live or die on the name itself. It's going to live or die based on the content that the show produces. And I have been pretty proud with the library of content I've built up over this last six months or so doing the show. It's part of the reason why I want to cut it down, get some clips out there. And another thing, part of the reason I also ran into this issue is that I'm trying to get an audio only version of the show out on Spotify and iTunes and Google and all that other crap that you find podcasts regularly on. So thankfully, before I actually started to really 
go forward and pushing out the show on a wider scale, I realized a good thing that I would have a lot of conflict with another name from another show. So that's the end of that. Just giving you guys a little bit of prep time, a couple weeks prep time that the show name is changing and it's actually going to give me an opportunity. I'm going to take this opportunity to fuse my YouTube brand together a little bit under maybe one larger umbrella that has different branches. But that being said, I wanted to just make sure you guys had a little bit of prep time before that happened. But on to today's episode, and I'm very, very, very excited about this episode. Even though a lot of crazy stuff has happened recently, particularly just yesterday, we had Ron DeSantis' disastrous launch of his presidential campaign. As funny as that was, I don't think that is going to be as important as the topic that we're going to be talking about today, nor will that have the wide-ranging impacts of what we're going to be talking about today. Today, we are going to be turning our attention back to the Russo-Ukraine war as several developments have happened in that region that I'd like to talk about. And as well, the main topic of today is we're going to be talking about a particular document which has recently been released. It's one of the most well-researched and interesting documents I've read in regards to the Russo-Ukraine war in quite some time. And it details the evolution that the Russian forces are undergoing due to their initial failures. And I think it's very important to talk about how tactics are advancing and what the Russians are trying to do in response to some of the roadblocks that they've hit early on in this war. And the reason we're going to go over this kind of stuff is because I do see a lot of complacency here in the West about the capacity of the Russian forces. And one of the most dangerous things I think we can do in any sort of adversarial context, whether that's a war, whether that's a, a fight, whether it's like a sport fight or an actual fight fight, or whether it's a debate, one of the most dangerous things you can do is underestimating your opponent. And I do worry that a lot of people do underestimate the Russian army's capacity, especially their capacity for change and their capacity for learning from their mistakes moving forward. And again, one, one of the things we talked about in that episode is sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, but by the end of this year, we'll probably have a much better, we'll have a much clearer picture if it's actually working out for them. Because while it seems that the Russian forces have taken control of the vast majority of the city, it's not disputed that the Ukrainians still, as we are talking, hold a small toehold in the Southwest. Unfortunately, I don't think that that is going to last too much longer. If we zoom into this area, we can see, unfortunately, um, this is not the best for satellite imagery. Over on Google Maps here, we can get the satellite imagery of the area, and we can see that it's mostly residential buildings and flat area, with the exception of this building here. What is this? corporate office. <laughs> this building looks like it could be used as somewhat of a, of a defensive point. That being said, the rest of this area in the Southwest does not look like it was, it's very defensible. So I don't expect that to last too much longer, unfortunately. But there is another reason why Wikipedia still lists this battle as ongoing. 
despite the fact that the Russians have captured the majority of the city, is that is because the Ukrainians continue to counterattack on the flanks. And I think up until that point, until there's actually no more fighting in and around the city, Wikipedia is not willing to declare it as over yet. I think that they always are going to move on the side of caution here. But one of the things I always find interesting is when Wikipedia is going to declare things as officially done. Because I think we've talked about in the past where I think in terms of things that are very subtle and non-controversial, Wikipedia is a great source of information. But in terms of things that are currently happening and have a lot of debate surrounding them, not as useful. So when it comes to them trying to decide when the battle is actually over, according to an encyclopedia article, how do they make that decision? At what point do they call it? Right now, they're erring on the side of caution, it seems like, and saying that the battle is still ongoing until probably there is, like I said, no more fighting in and around the city. So the long story short here, the reason I brought all of this up is that there is a lot of confusion around the status of the Battle of Bakhmut, whether it's officially over or not, because there has been some confusion from the Ukrainian side, where there have been some mixed messaging, where some officials, such as even Zelensky himself, appeared to admit that the Battle of Bakhmut was over, but his generals are saying, no, we still have forces fighting in the city. So at this point, it's still up in the air, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the Battle of Blackwood is drawing to a close. But the twilight of the Battle of Bakhmut is the backdrop that I want to use to reflect on this document that we're going to spend most of the episode talking about today, because I do think, and it's important to remind ourselves that we're entering a new phase of the war, and it's important to examine what the Russian armed forces are going to look like entering that new phase of the war. Because with the Battle of Bakhmut, again, in its twilight, I don't think we're going to see any more Russian offensives for quite some time. We are probably going to see the much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive sometime. Honestly, who knows? This could be just a whole big ruse. But that being said, at some point, Ukraine is going to have to counterattack to reclaim its lost territory. So that will have to happen at some point, where and when we don't know. But effectively, currently, the ball right now is in Ukraine's court, and where they're going to play it remains to be seen. So until that counteroffensive hits, whenever it happens to be, I think we're going to have maybe a little bit of a lull between now and then. And like I said, this is going to give us time to reflect on some of the lessons that we have learned about the Russian armed forces. So with that, let's move to the main attraction right here. And I'm going to post this in a pinned comment below. I highly recommend you guys go over this document. We're going to go over it extensively today, but it's, it's a good 30 pages. We're going to go over the really important points and really interesting points that I think you guys should know. But that being said, I highly encourage you guys to take the time and read through this document yourself. Not only is it informative, if you're like me and you've been following military history your entire adult life, I have never seen a document like this as well-researched and well-sourced on an active 21st century conflict and how an army is adapting 
to the new face of warfare in this current century. It's extremely fascinating and a little bit hard for me not to geek out over. So this document written by Jack Watley and Nick Reynolds, these guys have written a couple documents about the Ukraine war before, and this is written for the Royal United Service Institute. And this is a geopolitical think tank out of the United Kingdom. And what this document does is break down in very great detail the evolutions in Russian tactics among the infantry, among the aviation services, among the armored vehicles, among artillery, and even among things like the command structure and electronic warfare. So I'm not going to bother actually reading the summary. I'm just going to jump into the very first segment about the infantry advancements. All right, so let's jump right into it. And we're going to start with the backbone of any army, which is going to be the infantry. At the beginning of the war, the Russian military operated in a mechanized battalion tactical group structure, the BTGs. I'm sure if you guys were following things at the start of the war, you were very familiar with the battalion tactical groups. While the units lacked cohesion or sufficient staff capacity to properly employ their combined armed elements, casualties and the failure of approach have led the armed forces of Russia to revert to relying on four infantry types, disposable, line, assault, and specialized. These are used in a combination of both attack and defense in a manner shaped by current and operational challenges. They are not formally codified in a doctrine. Line, assault, and specialized infantry are generated through the normal Russian recruitment and training system. Line infantry are generally based on a mechanized units. They differ from assault infantry, and they do not have specific assault training, and therefore used for supporting tasks, improving, and occupying defensive positions. Assault infantry have received additional training closer to what be, would be expected of NATO light infantry forces and are considered to be a skilled and valuable asset. As such, they are spared some of the mundanity and backbreaking labor of digging defensive operations in order to prevent fatigue and attrition and to allow them to conduct rehearsals for offensive operations. Russian airborne units the VDV and naval units are generally, though not universally, assault units in practice, with the cultural expectations that they will have an esprit de corps and a level of confidence appropriate with an aggressive mindset. Wagner Group and other Russian PMCs have also been involved in the formation of assault units. Specialized infantry might be generated from the infantry, the VDV, professional elements of the Wagner Group, Spetsnaz or other corps, but they have received additional role-specific training and equipment which would allow them for a particular kind of employment. Russia's disposable infantry should be considered fundamentally different, drawn from three principal resources. Conscripts from the Luhansk-Donetsk People's Republics, heavily attrited from the early rounds of fighting. Prisoners drafted by the Wagner Group, and under-trained, mobilized Russian civilians. These companies originally started as approximately 60 people, but have since been broken down into platoons of approximately 15. 
they are issued small arms. Ukrainian troops report that they often appear to be under the influence of amphetamines and other narcotic substances, with material recovered from the battlefield indicated that they are commonly taken in liquid form. In the attack, the disposable infantry are first to be employed. Disposable platoons are assigned to those avenues of approach to which Ukrainian positions are deemed to offer some cover and could prove viable. Although these have been colloquially described as human wave tactics, these are not dense concentrations of infantry conducting an assault in a single mass. Rather, a disposable fire team of between two to five personnel sent from a forming up position in the Russian front line and advances to contact. There may be upwards of five teams pushed across an axis at one time, but normally only one or two person teams will be able to work forwards. The team will skirmish with the Ukrainian defensive positions on contact, often until killed. Ukrainian troops noted that many to continue to advance, even after being wounded, and on more than one occasion, Ukrainian soldiers report that disposable infantry had been shot from Russian positions while attempting to retreat. As teams are destroyed by defensive fire, Russian forces will continue to commit successive teams forward by the same line of approach. Ukrainian forces must continually defend their positions against consecutive attack waves, expending munition and exposing the locations of their defensive positions and exhausting their personnel. Sorry, I quoted pretty extensively from there, but there's just so much good information. Although some of this is what people have been talking about. If you've been following the war, you've probably heard these kind of tactics described before where so-called disposable infantry will be sent forward to reveal Ukrainian positions and then they'll be destroyed via artillery, then followed up by more experienced assault units or more capable assault units. But the one thing I really like that they specified here and one of the things that I do think definitely gets lost in translation is this idea that it's a human wave tactic <laughs> i feel like it's more like a human shower tactic almost or a human rain tactic because right the a wave implies a force distributed upon like a long front line or something like that pushed with a pretty equal and forceful amount of pressure against something where that's not the case at all and you don't need that in this day and age. And the reason you don't need something like that is because during World War One, when the firearms technology was not quite as advanced as it is now, you had people armed with, uh, Russian soldiers armed with a Moisin again rifle, which probably has a rate of fire of 20 rounds per minute if you're really on point and working that bolt really well and reloading really well versus a Russian soldier advancing with a AK-74 that has a rate of fire between somewhere in the realm of 600 and 650 rounds per minute. If you wanted to give a World War I assault group the same level of fire as one person armed with an AK-74, you would need 30 people armed with Moisin the Gats firing at the same time. 
So if you've got this idea of people packed shoulder to shoulder advancing forward, that's definitely not what's happening. And that's not what needs to happen anymore. Because again, like they mentioned in this report, a small team between two to five men already has more effective firepower than a human wave of World War I men armed with bolt-action rifles. And in a similar vein, it also works on the defense. You don't need as many people stacked together in a trench, shoulder to shoulder, to give the same defensive fire rate as one man armed with an AK-74. He can offer the same defensive firepower on his own that 30 men used to provide 100 years ago. So before we leave the point off about the infantry, we'll talk about the last group of Russian infantry. So just to recap, you have your disposable infantry, usually made up of conscripts and ill-equipped troops that are used, not human wave tactics, but definitely cannon fodder tactics. So before I move forward, let me bring up this point because it's pretty important and it will be important in regards to a bunch of other elements moving forward. So once these weak forces move forward and find some ground and take some ground, what they'll do, what the Russians will do is then move up and start trying to fortify that position and use it as a forward assault base. So rather than seeking to simply attrit the defense, this area that I just described will become a base of fire. Furthermore, artillery fire shifts from harassment to barrage. And this is what will enable the Russian assault infantry to attack. Often favoring a flank, Russian assault infantry tends to advance in company strength with supportive armor. These troops tend to endeavor to turn the flank of a defensive position. Taking, taking on a position, they often withdraw and are replaced by line infantry and additional disposable troops who then set about fortifying the position so that it can be held as a base against further probing attacks. And one of the interesting things when it comes to Wagner specifically is that they don't have the equivalent of line infantry like the regular Russian forces do. Line infantry being your guys that are just usually there to occupy, as I said, defensive positions, just like your regular typical army infantryman may have some training, but not necessarily a whole lot. But that being said, usually being able to hold defensive positions is considered to be a far easier task than assaulting them. But for Wagner, they only have these disposable units, which are made up of these convicts. And then they have these elite assault units, which are made up of guys that they've been building up since their missions in Syria. Or in some cases, because it mentions in the report here, that they are paid a higher wage than the Russian military. So they'll find particularly exceptional soldiers and give them a, a chunk of cash and say, come, come join our outfit. And then they will become this elite assault corps. And again, it goes on to further mention that this assault corps is actually treated as like, they're really coddled in the sense that they're not the kind of people that are going to be committed to a battle that's close and they, they're going to be thrown in to turn the, turn the tide for the Russians. These are going to guys that are going to be thrown into battle that the Russians are already winning, and they're going to be thrown in, in there to A, ensure that they win, and ensure that they win by as large a margin as they possibly can. And the whole cynical arrangement that the Russian infantry has evolved into is that these elite assault units 
are very much so protected that they want to minimize casualties among them as much as possible so they can continue to commit to these assaults and continue to take ground, but do so with as little loss as possible. So the casualties, therefore, in the war are shifted to, as they mentioned, these disposable units. And my big question here, though, is that these disposable units aren't going to last forever. You're going to run out of pawns eventually. There are only so many convicts you can clear the jails out of. There are only so many areas you can draw conscripts from these, from the Donetsk region, from the occupied Russian regions. Eventually, that well is going to run dry. And what then? And I don't know. Do the new line infantry become the disposable infantry? Who knows? However, in the medium term, this is a very cynically intelligent move for the Russians to make. I think this is probably the smartest thing they can do, given their current situation and given their current manpower availability. And what all of this report really shows to me is that the Russian high command is recognizing that this is going to be a long war and a war of attrition. And they're very much so gearing up for that kind of war. And as I mentioned in one of our earlier episodes, this is the kind of war that Russia wants and it's good at. And it's the only kind of war against Ukraine right now that it could feasibly win. So let's move into the engineers really quickly. We're not going to spend too much time talking about them because I want to move on to the, the next part, which is the next biggest after the infantry. But the engineers should be mentioned. They do mention in this report that it's not very widely discussed, but the Russian engineering corps is one of the most advanced that they have, one of the most capable that they have. Not only are they able to do things like repair and build railroads on the fly, for example, they have an engineering corps dedicated just to that. But as we mentioned in our discussion about emerging infantry tactics, uh, what the Russians will do is that as their disposable infantry moves forward and takes ground, what they're going to try and do is find an area that they can then take and fortify and turn that into kind of like a forward operating base. And they'll use that for a number of different things that that will discuss throughout their report. But one of those things is they use them as a place to put mortars and firing positions. And over time, the engineers will come in and make these static positions more and more capable and more and more fortified. So they come in take these positions and initially turn them into these like forward operating bases that are as fortified as they can be. And over time, they just become more and more fortified as those that initially they start just with wood planks and that kind of material. But over time, they will try and move in cement and reinforce it. And one of the things we'll talk about at the end of this report is how they mentioned that in circumstances where a lot of these positions have been very well fortified and are very static, they'll start to bring in anti-air defenses and other types of defenses and mount them there directly on the front line. So while many of the Russian branches have proven themselves to have many things left to be desired, the engineers have not been one of them. And it has not been really talked about in the West that they are one of the better performing branches of the Russian military. But with that, let's move into what I think is the most fascinating, uh, what I think is the most fascinating topic. I like this. I really like this picture too. This is, these are Ukrainian 
engineers. These aren't Russian engineers. It says right here, they're building, building a pontoon bridge. I just think that looks super cool. Anyway, let's move into what I think is the most interesting part of this discussion and where the most fascinating evolution has happened, in my opinion, which is in regards to artillery. So let's talk about the artillery and the artillery, particularly for Russia. And it says right here, artillery remains at the heart of the Russian military. I would say that pretty much since World War I, where artillery was one of the, if not the best performing branch of the Russian military during that war, they have really focused in artillery as a core branch of their, of their military. Russian artillery definitely outperforming, say, the Austro-Hungarians or the Ottomans in that war, but not the Germans. However, I'd say in World War II, the Russian artillery definitely outperformed the Germans in that regard because the Germans had, by and large, moved away from an artillery-focused doctrine. In any case, let's move into some of these, some of these tidbits here, some of these deets, as the kids say these days. By summer 2022, the Russians had consolidated artillery into artillery tactical groups. Russia's currently using artillery brigades, which allocate batteries in support of axes to hold a significant force under direct command for counter-battery fire and to support a sector's main effort. Russian fire continues to be the main shaping effect on the fighting. Ammunition availability has shaped employment. The Russians have had no difficulty in amassing ammunition around their guns in Dabas, in the summer of 2022, after HIMARS strikes disrupted these supply practices, the availability of accurate long-range Western howitzers made stockpiling difficult. The Russian approach to fire control was disrupted. What follows has been a process of experimentation and refinement that is beginning to produce new tactics. Again, super interesting here. Essentially, what they're saying is that things were all great until... The HIMARS came in and they disrupted the Russian supply trains because they were able to strike deeper into Russian territory where they were stockpiling ammunition. So as a result of that, the Russians have come up with some new tactics that are going to be described right here. The Russians have introduced new terms into their fire lexicons. Immediate value and weight of salvo. The first reflects the uneven effects of fire based on a tactical context and thus the need for precise timing and delivery of fire in relations to wider actions of a unit. Thus, fire rate planning is now framed as a series of decision points. So, effectively what they're saying is that it's no, they're no longer thinking of artillery fire as these long barrages necessarily drawn out for a specific objective. It's almost more of in a reactive way that they're thinking about each artillery fire as how am I going to get the most value out of this particular engagement? And as they mentioned, this where you can get the most value changes very rapidly in a battlefield context. So as a result, they have changed the way that they allocate their artillery firing missions. Let's move on to the second point, which is the weight of salvo. This is also reflective of a shift in an emphasis to the timing of effects, desire to land the greatest weight within the defined period of time to maximize the effect. So the immediate effect is how much value you think you're going to get right now 
and weight of fire is how much fire you think you need to put on to this area in order to get that effect, if that makes sense. That, so that's the difference between the two. And from that, some firing patterns have emerged, in fact, four of them, and they're described as the nomadic cannon, the fiery carousel, the roaming platoon, and umbrella cover. The nomadic cannon reflects harassing fire, just moving it around in mobile firing positions. And this is often to draw counter-battery fire or conduct artillery raids. The fiery carousel reflects a means of sustaining survivability while sustaining a barrage. So basically, in order to continue to fire, even if you're getting counter-battery fire, the roaming platoon concept envisions roaming guns maximizing the weight of a salvo against a deliberate target. Again, guns which are much more mobile, moving as needed with targets moving forward. And umbrella cover is essentially a means of suppression. Giving your guys an umbrella, right? If people are coming at you. This is your defensive artillery arrangement. So as would be expected, fire is not only used to strike at Ukrainian defensive positions, but to blunt Ukrainian assaults against Russian defensive positions. If the Russians learn that an assault is being prepared, the area is often saturated with fire to prevent ex execution. And that's funny, that reminds me of, there's a story in the Battle of Kursk that the Russians knew that the Germans were planning to attack preemptively, and then the Battle of Kursk started with a preemptive Soviet artillery barrage on the German positions. So this has been a part of Russian doctrine for a very long time. Another common tactic is for Russians to withdraw from a position that is being assaulted, then to saturate it with fire once Ukrainian troops attempt to occupy it. And that is another interesting tactic. So they'll give, they'll give up ground, and then once the Ukrainians come in and try and take it, that's when they'll start to fire. So they'll wait, they'll try and wait until their guard is down and then attack. So let's move on to the point where Russia decides where it's going to allocate its artillery strikes. More consequential than adaptions and firing sequences has been the refinement of the Russian reconnaissance firing circuit, the Russian term for the kill chain, to make it more responsive and flexible in delivering fire support to maneuvering forces. Each commander of an axis will generally retain an orbit of Orlan 10s above the fighting to provide information to their command post. And those are uh, like UAV type of drones that are delivering information on what's going on. The commander also retains several Orlan 10s in a coordinated complex above areas of interest. Thus, Ukrainian forces often find that they are being observed from two different Orlan 10 complexes, each able to call down different effects. The time for artillery engagements from these systems remains rapid, around three to five minutes. Engagement from electronic warfare detection is longer, about 20 to 30 minutes. One underappreciated aspect of Russian fire reconnaissance early in the conflict was the Starlet system. It allowed multiple feeds from a ground-based sensor or detections within reconnaissance troops to be programmed and transmitted through a wide range of bearers which are integrated into the Russian digital fire control. Few Russian units were found to have starless during the initial invasion, and even among those who had it, they did not know how to set it up properly, and it was often left in baggage. 
The low quality of training among Russian troops means that it is still not prevalent. It is still widely used among specialist infantries, infantry units assigned to VDV or Wagner formations. These personal stylists are to either place sensors close to Ukrainian positions or to report correct fire for Russian artillery to enable accurate engagements. The combination of calls from the combined with reconnaissance fire combined with reconnaissance fire complexes of higher echelon fires using organic using organic data using organic data is outlined in figure one. The figure shows three interlocking chains of reconnaissance fire circuits that fire that form a direct link between reconnaissance and fire assets. To a link between reconnaissance assets through fire control to a battery and the ability of higher headquarters to assign alternate means of destruction against a dedicated target. So if you're wondering what this little diagram says here, all that it says here is on the side. On the right side here, it says like it says operational command. And then below it says the various like artillery batteries. It's like artillery battery one, artillery battery two, artillery battery three. And then above them is the means of detection. So basically it's trying to show that all of these artillery batteries are connected into the command center and able to get information from each other. So all of these intelligence operations are connected to the command center and connected to all the other artillery pieces. And here we have another diagram here, which I'll break down that is showing the forces towards us or the Russian forces and moving away from us would be Ukrainian positions and showing how two interlocking Russian positions are covering for each other and how their artillery positions cover for each other using UAV reconnaissance and how with this system they can create a much more three-dimensional picture of where they need to allocate their artillery. Before I move on to the next couple parts, which I'm going to try and clump together because they are interesting, but they're not quite as impactful as the infantry and especially the artillery adaptations, in my opinion. But the one thing I do want to mention is I forgot to read it as we we're going over the initial parts here, but during counter artillery missions or during counter artillery fire, Russian crews are actually told to abandon their guns and just kind of leave it there and run and take cover and not fire back until the barrage stops. Unless, of course, they're in some sort of extenuating circumstances, like they need, they're enacting, what do they call that? The, what was the term? The fiery carousel commission, the fiery carousel. Yeah, that was it. The fiery carousel mission, unless they're doing that, if they're not doing that effectively, if they receive any type of counterfire from Ukrainian positions, they abandon their guns and they take cover until the fire is over. And what that says to me is that it's very interesting as to what the Russians are now allocating their manpower in and what they're trying to defend and what they're trying to preserve. So they're trying to preserve those specialized assault units and they're trying to preserve their artillery crews. And that makes sense because the experience these crews probably have accumulated over you know, this past year potentially has probably become invaluable. And if the Russians have no shortage of one thing, it's artillery pieces. So they can afford to lose the artillery piece, but they probably can't afford to lose the experienced crew. 
All right, so now let's move into armor. Armor obviously has evolved a lot since the beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, we saw Russia waste endless amounts of armor and various ill-planned armored thrusts, particularly at the start of the war, over ill-planned river crossings, over various other ill-planned counter-assaults. Needless to say, things have not been going well for Russian armor, but they are slowly starting to adapt their tactics in regards to it, and uh, it's important to understand that and see what they're doing. So let's dive into this a little bit. The Russian use of armor has evolved significantly during the conflict. The BTG, uh, as I mentioned, the BTG concept is dead. That was one of the things that did not survive first contact with the enemy. The uh, way of structuring units is, is effectively dead and gone now. So now, effectively, Russian tanks operate in three ways. They are used to supplement artillery in their capacity through indirect engagements. And, and this is particularly notable in sectors of the Russian main effort, where there is no sudden allocation of air defenses to protect a robust logistics architecture capable of supporting a large number of guns. Right there, it says that in, in a pinch, basically, <laughs> tanks are used to replace artillery pieces. They don't need the same logistical means to make them effective. However, because of the low angle of attacks, indirect fire engaged by tanks make for an ineffective form of artillery. Nonetheless, these engagements can often be made from a position that would not be viable for artillery because of a tank's greater protection and thus reduced vulnerability to counter battery fire, enabling tanks to fill in the gap when firing while guns displace or become suppressed. Very interesting here how tanks are being used as a stopgap for artillery now, and they're not being used kind of like alongside an artillery line, but particularly in moments where they are in that kind of medium range, when they're vulnerable to a medium range engagement, where they're vulnerable to counter battery fire, tanks are better for that position because they're more maneuverable and they're better protected. While this is not Again, as it notes, the most effective artillery and the most effective use of tanks. This is what's screaming to me is like making do with what you got. And they are finding a way to use these tanks in a method that is still getting some sort of value out of them rather than just like throwing them into a meat grinder to be destroyed by Ukrainian infantry. Second, tanks are used as highly accurate support fire assets able to stand off at two kilometers and use their enhanced optics to knock out firing positions. It is important to note that while the introduction of older tanks such as the T-62 and T-55 to the field has been mocked online, these vehicles are largely being used in the role of fire support, function, a function which is offered by BMPs and other infantry fighting vehicles. They represent an increase in range and protection and kinetic effect over these infantry fighting vehicles and therefore pose a serious threat on the battlefield when there are a limited number of anti-tank guided weapons able to reach them in their standoff range. That's the important part you have to remember that yes, the, the tank is still a tank, right? A tank still a tank. And I know if I were on the battlefield fighting away, I'd rather have a tank on my side than no tank at all. And if you're in a position where you don't have adequate anti-tank equipment, pretty screwed. The thing though, is that these tanks 
definitely don't offer the same amount of protection as modern tanks, but they do definitely offer a, an enhanced form of protection over, say, a BMP. The third use of armor is by raiding, and this is very another interesting thing to me. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just give you the cliff notes there. But basically, what the Russians are doing in particular of, of cases when they have concentrated uh, numbers of modern tanks with the night vision optics and thermals and that kind of stuff, they're using them for raids during the night. So they'll like go into Ukrainian positions. And what they try and do is they try and get in, shoot as many shells as they can, and then drive away. And that, that's their entire plan. Like come in, blow up anything, I guess, anything that moves and drive away. And that is the third use of Russian armor. A couple things that, as it notes here, yes, tank on tank engagements have become exceptionally rare. Engagement speed has been the determining, the determining factor in these clashes. Ukrainian tankers note that one-shot kills are possible if the point between the turret and the grasses is hit. Russian explosive reactive armor, ERA, has proven highly effective in, pre in preventing most anti-tank systems from defeating the tank's armor. Some operators have reported hitting the tanks multiple times with barrel-launched anti-tank missiles without knocking them out. Anti-tank guided missiles, that is. Specifically, Ukrainian tankers that report that mobility kills against vehicle tracks are also an effective means of removing armor, Russian armor from the battlefield because they usually cause the crew to abandon the vehicle. This is because the tank's mobility is considered its best means of protection against artillery and survivability. And if that is, and that survivability is compromised, if it, if it is immobilized. So yes, tank on tank engagements, not as common as you would think in this war. And before I end my section on armor, I just want to read this because this is another important development that Russians have made, which is several modifications to their tanks, which are reducing the effectiveness of anti-tank guided missiles. And that is a big deal because they were extraordinarily effective at the start of this war and reducing their effective does, effectiveness doesn't make them ineffective but let's see what the russians are doing first off uh, they're fitting vehicles as well as many defensive positions with an anti-thermal material because many of these missiles are guided thermally if you can reduce your thermal signatures you can fool the missile the heat seeking missile <laughs> if you will and this is proving highly effective second modification is to the engine deck and thus the heat plume from the vehicle's exhaust this is reducing the reliability and range of certain anti-tank guided missiles to engage the target. So they're hiding the exhaust pipe, again, decreasing the amount of heat the tank emits. Third, by fighting at dusk and dawn, when vehicle temperature is most similar to the ambient temperature and surroundings, this is known as thermal crossover. The vehicles are harder to detect with thermal infantry. This results in a significant decrease in the probability of a kill from anti-tank guided missiles. That is very fascinating. And I did not know this until I read this report that that it was a thing that that existed, that you could gain thermal cover effectively by fighting during times of the day when the temperature is the same as a vehicle. And it makes complete sense. It makes obvious sense when you think about it, but it's not something you probably would think about until the actual war is in front of you. So I'm gonna breeze through these last two points. Electronic warfare. Electronic warfare is becoming more capable for the Russians. What it is mainly focused on is dealing with drones and other UAVs, particularly in the form of jamming them or stopping them in any in any way they can. 
So what the Russians are doing now is they're starting to deploy electronic warfare teams effectively every 10 to 7 kilometers along the front. And this is greatly increasing their capacity for electronic warfare. And uh, that's a very, very brief piece. When it comes to air defense as well, it mentions that the performance of Russian air defense systems is quite high. And as we mentioned before, one of the things that is happening is that as Russians are taking more ground and establishing more static defensive positions, they are reinforcing them more with these air defense systems, making Ukrainian counterattacks via the air much more difficult. And then we move on to aviation. Very interesting in regards to aviation, because one of the things that they mentioned in the infantry section that we breezed over is that the Russian army continues to have low morale, but that doesn't manifest in soldiers breaking and running away, as you would think. But where it does manifest is in cooperation in between branches of the military. So cooperation in between Russian branches of the military, definitely not a thing. And again, that is another historical trait of the Russian army, that interoperational cooperation has not always been the best. And when it comes to aviation, while Russia maintains a large and powerful air force, it has not done a lot in this war. And Russia has been much more eager to rely on its ground-based forces. And one of the reasons potentially why this is, is because there is not a lot of inter-operational coordination between the Air Force and the Army. So the Army isn't getting the support that they are hoping from the Air Force, and the Air Force isn't getting the defense on the ground from anti-air missiles that they would be hoping to get from the Army. That being said, aviation is still mostly used in this war by the Russians as a means of close air support, where you'll have your disposable infantry advancing, and if they have aviation available, they'll send in planes to strike Ukrainian positions and disable them. And of course, it mentions the use of the Shahid drones and other or loitering munitions to continue to try and strike against Ukrainian infrastructure. That's something that does continue to happen although just not on the scale that it used to happen six months ago. Command and control very briefly, very briefly just mentions that now the Russians are starting to better fortify their command posts and better integrate them so they can integrate better with one another so the Russian generals aren't getting destroyed at such an embarrassing rate. So let's move on to the final part here, and I guess this will be our... We'll try to end on our feel-good story. It's been a little while since I've done one, but again, I think that this report is really valuable. I really wanted to share it with you guys, and I think that particularly as we're moving into this next phase of the conflict, it's a great time to talk about it. So this will be, I, I, I guess, as feel-good of a story as we can end on how we can adapt uh, our assistance to Ukraine and how Ukraine can adapt to these changing Russian tactics. But before I read this, I want to mention, I just want to give my own conclusions, which are effectively after reading through this and seeing the advancements and seeing what the Russians are doing, I'm getting a little bit worried in the sense that it's clear that the Russians are deploying an ability to adapt, to advance their tactics. Again, it remains a very open question whether that will be enough. But what it's saying to me is that the Russians very much so recognize, and based on what we've reviewed here and the type of tactics we've reviewed, the Russians very much so recognize that this is a long-term war of attrition 
and they are moving their army and they're moving their forces to reflect that. And again, this is the type of war that Russia is good at and the only type of war that Russia could win against Ukraine. So it seems like they recognize that and they are making the moves to put themselves in that position. So how do we counteract that? Let's see. As Ukraine prepares for offensive operations, it is important to consider the tactical challenges the armed forces of Ukraine will face. How Ukraine plans to overcome these challenges and priorities for those supporting Ukrainian forces can be identified through the analysis of the Russian capabilities outlined above. By some of these issues facing the armed forces of Ukraine, which are clearly identifiable in open sources, Russian infantry, when properly supported, can make Ukrainian offensive operations challenging. Specifically, the volume of Russian fire and their protection by air defenses, to the extent the Russian forces already engage in protection engineering and the ability to disrupt mobile command and control, represent tactical challenges. While Russia's defensive operations are positional, a cardinal sin among adherents of maneuver warfare, the defeating layers of prepared defenses still represents a problem. These defenses are absolutely not positional, with Russian forces utilizing some mobile reserves at the tactical level. The depth of these defenses means that Ukraine must engage in serious combat power to penetrate the Russian lines and the extent of Russian defensive fortifications along the front. This makes bypassing them nearly impossible. Even if Ukrainian forces achieve a breakthrough in the future and regain their ability to maneuver, this will require localized breakthroughs and mopping up operations against bypassed defensive positions. This means that although there are a variety of likely tasks for Ukrainian ground forces and units that they will need to do to be able to maneuver, training for assault operations against fortified positions constitutes a critical training priority for Ukrainian troops. And yeah, that that is not an enviable task that, that's for any any military force. I would not want to be the guy told that, yeah, you are doing assault training, you're doing shock troop training. This is this is what your job is. The first obstacle for Ukrainian forces is winning the indirect fire duel. In the face of enemy artillery dominance, offensive maneuver is extremely costly. Ukraine's international partners have provided a large number of artillery systems and the country is receiving a constant supply of ammunition, although the nature provided do not always reflect the balance of calibers available to the armed forces of Ukraine. However, the real issue is that the pri the real issue is that the priority for provising Ukrainian artillery for defense has left its fire systems lopsided in its capabilities. Ukrainian artillery has ample means to blunt Russian advances with effective fire control architecture and the ability to coordinate engagement from multiple dispersed guns. However, suppression of superior numbers of superior number of Russian artillery systems requires counter battery capabilities to rapidly detect and engage enemy firing positions. It is evident that even if Ukrainian forces are to set the conditions in any sector for offensive action, its international partners partners should prioritize the provision of detection systems for directing counter-battery fire. Though I'm not really sure what that looks like. I would like them to tell me what that looks like. Maybe someone who has a little bit more 
military expertise can tell me what kind of tools would be used for counter-battery fire. Winning the firefight in a direct engagement is also critical, as suppressing enemy positions during assault actions is essential. As regards to heavy weapons, a significant emphasis has been placed on the 50 caliber heavy machine guns equipping Ukrainian units. These are highly effective and their fire has a very flat, very flat trajectory. This would be a complement to any automatic grenade launchers such as the MK-19 grenade machine gun, the GMG, which would pose a greater threat to enemy troops in trenches dug in open positions given the arcing trajectory of the rounds. Unfortunately, Ukraine faces multiple pressures which serve major impediments to honing the skills, tactical coordination, and group cohesion of its units. It is required to deploy its best units on ongoing operations along an extended front line in eastern Ukraine. Furthermore, Ukraine's training establishments are having to process an influx of new recruits with limited prior military training. These recruits must both replace the casualties from existing units and facilitate the expansion of the armed forces of Ukraine. This is no easy feat and comes after training establishments were severely disrupted early in the war, including some cases being physically overrun by Russian ground forces or having instructors or students mobilized at the beginning of the war as an emergency measure. The scale of training assistance required, therefore, should not be underestimated. And that, uh, the main takeaway here is that the fundamentals are important. And while we are giving Ukraine our best in terms of our military equipment, it is important not to neglect the fundamentals here. Collective training for units must be prioritized with a particular focus on fire control and indirect fire support for units to maximize suppression without wasting ammunition. Effective tactical command and control of and between fire support, engineering, and assault units to ensure effective suppression during breaching and assaults without fratricide and the conduct of assaults themselves. The relevant battle drills are not particularly complex conceptually, but they must be understood well enough by all involved for there to be no requirement to submit to a planning process beforehand, or for that planning and delivery of orders to be quick and concise as to minimize vulnerable pauses in operational activity. They require thorough practice under realistic conditions to build the sufficient coordination to be effective and for the speed and momentum to prevent the enemy from responding effectively. So building up effectiveness and responsive command is another very big important factor. Let's end off here with our last couple of paragraphs. A second critical requirement for maintaining momentum is the protection of forces that have broken through from counterattacks by Russian forces held in reserve. Reserve maneuver elements can be fixed with artillery so long as they are located. Defensive artillery fire must be obviated by maintaining momentum, therefore denying enemy real-time location on data targets. This means disrupting their means of holding units under observation, Meanwhile, protecting units from aviation is critical to prevent a responsive set of strikes to blunt a breakthrough. For defeat of enemy artillery, some deployable electronic warfare capacities may be useful. But whether for UAVs or aviation, tactical air defense is by far the greatest priority. The ability to have air defense move 
with and shield maneuver elements is a vi is vital and requires potentially novel support from its Ukrainian partners. So that's another good point that in order to, because Ukraine is very much on the back foot when it comes to its aviational capabilities, increasing Ukraine's mobile anti-air defenses is probably a good idea. Finally, the disruption of enemy counterattacks or strikes from artillery and aviation would be greatly assisted by the destruction of enemy command and control infrastructure. For this, suppression of air defenses protecting these targets will be important. Assistance in both standoff electronic attacks and the use of tools such as UAVs to threaten and displace air defenses or else saturate them with false positives or non-economical targets would greatly assist in creating confusion, overwhelming the enemy decision-making, and reducing the level of protection to maximize the impact of Ukrainian strikes. So that brings us to the end of our document here. We'll end off the episode just on this note, which I looked up just as I was trying to wrap things up here, that according to Prigozhin, who is, of course, the leader of the Wagner mercenary operation, he is starting to withdraw his troops and turn over control of Bakhmut to the well, what would be the line infantry that we discussed from our document, which is most likely just regular Russian forces. Whether or not that's actually what's happening, I don't know. The one thing about this guy here is that he says a lot of shit. So whenever I encounter someone who just says a lot of shit, I just look for what they're actually going to do. So are they actually going to withdraw their forces away from Bakhmut? We shall see. But if they do, it is going to be something that we need to keep an eye on where they're going to be deployed next, because that could be an indication that Russia is planning an assault there. So anyway, with that, I want to end the episode. I've gone way over time. But like I said, this was a very fascinating episode to me. I really got the opportunity to talk about things that I think are important. And, and hopefully you guys found it entertaining and informative as well. But unfortunately, I don't have a feel-good story. Like I said, I, I just don't have the time to record one right now. So we're going to have to wrap it up. So with that, I'm going to end the penultimate episode of Chatter in the Skull. And this has been Comrade signing off for now. And until next time, you guys take care. <laughs>